0: I'm gonna be sharing a sermon from uh, UUA that was written by uh, Reverend Peter Friedrichs, and the topic is Be Who You Are. So anytime I say I, it's Peter Friedrichs. Um, So I didn't have time to re-editorialize this. Um, As part of my seminary training, I spent a summer working as a hospital chaplain assigned to a psychiatric floor. I found it to be deeply gratifying work and I was able to build relationships with many of the patients. Some were long term and others had a quick turnaround. Some were what we called bouncers. These were people who would be admitted to the unit because of some behavioral issue. Oftentimes they had simply gone off their meds and needed to be restabilized, treated and then released. But within a matter of days or weeks they'd bounce back to the unit. In the course of my eight weeks at the hospital, some patients bounced several times. My favorite bouncer was Rose. Rose was a lovely woman who was about 80 years old who suffered from schizophrenia. Rose would be brought into the unit very agitated and aggressive, but within a day or so, with the proper medications, she'd be sweet as a peach. Rose and I had many long conversations about God and love and heaven, and she was rock solid in her Baptist faith. During one of our conversations, Rose expressed to me her concern about all the people who were interviewing and examining her. She was tired of being treated like a lab rat and told me that she was afraid to talk to the doctors. I tried to reassure her that they were there to help her and I suggested that she be honest with them in answering their questions. Just be yourself, I told her, and they'll take care of you. Rose's response to my sage advice was a priceless gem that I'll never forget. Be myself, she said. Of course I've got to be myself. Everybody else is taken. Today is the third and final sermon in a series honoring Reverend Forrest Church, the pastor of All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in New York City. These sermons presented the first, um, the first two parts of these sermons presented his mantra, which he claimed served him well as he faced death. The two mantras were, want what you have, and do what you can. The third leg of the stool is equally simple, be who you are. Let me first give you a short refresher on the first two statements before we dive into the third. When Church urges us to want what we have, he's not telling us to settle, but he's reminding us that even when things look grim, there's much to be thankful for. He uses the metaphor of a window with many panes of glass, each pain representing one of the many aspects of our lives, our health, our job, our relationships, our family. When one pain gets clouded over, he tells us, we must resist the urge to press our noses against that darkened pain, to the exclusion of all others. Instead, we should take a step back to allow the light from all the other pains to filter through. Church tells us to engage in thoughtful wishing rather than wishful thinking and thus to be grateful for all the gifts in our lives. To do what we can is to recognize both our own power and our own limitations. He writes that doing what you can means doing all you can, no more and no less. It's not just mucking by, but it's not trying to do more than you can either. Not stretching yourself out so far that you can't help but force a failure. When we do what we can, we seek to achieve the significant goals that lie within our power. And while we may risk failure, we don't set ourselves up for certain defeat. And now we find ourselves face to face with Church's third admonition. Be who you are. This is, he admits, the hardest task of all. Simply put, he tells us, to be who you are is not to fake your existence. He writes that each of us is unique with unique flaws and gifts. The world doesn't owe us a living, we owe the world a living, our very own. In his book Love and Death, Forrest Church tells of the opportunity he had as the son of the US Senator Frank Church to enter politics when he was still working on his doctorate in theology. After running his father's presidential primary campaign in Nebraska, he, wanted, he was ready to jump into his father's footsteps and run for public office himself. Fortunately, he listened to his father's advice to live his own life, not the life his father had lived. And in doing so, writes the younger church, I found my calling. I answered a call that was mine and not someone else's. He goes on to tell us, to envy another's skills, looks, or gifts rather than embracing your own nature and call is to fail in two respects, in trying to unsuccessfully be who we aren't and to fail to become who we are. Be who you are, as Rose pointed out, is a rather inane concept. Of course you are who you are. You are who you are because everyone else is already taken. But if it's so simple, then why do we spend so much of our lives trying to be who we're not? Trying to be like someone else, or trying to be the someone that someone else thinks or wants or makes us believe we should be? In the words of Mary Sarton's poem, so much, why do, why do we spend so much of our lives dissolved and shaken wearing other people's faces? To be who we are, who we were born to be, is no easy task. Consider for a moment our childhood and how we learn most of what we come to, be, to know. Although our intellect develops the ability to discern and debate, our most basic form of learning is emulation, or to put it in its simplest terms, copying. Like a giant game of follow the leader, we grow up watching what others do and observing the outcomes. If we like what we see, we try to do the same in hopes of gaining a similar result. From a very early age, we are wired to be like rather than to simply be. For some of us, this message is explicit. Why can't you be more like your brother, sister, cousin, fill in the blank. Our media convince us that to be accepted or to be happy or successful, we need to act a certain way, drive a certain car, marry a member of the opposite sex. There's a reason that the Rolling Stones song, Satisfaction, is still growing, going strong some 45 years after its release. It speaks in part to the futility of trying to be the person that someone else thinks we should be. When I'm watching my TV and that man comes on to tell me how white my shirts can be, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me. I try and I try and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. (laughs) Role models are invaluable for us on both a societal and an individual level. They serve to inspire us and to motivate us to consider what is possible. And there are certain traits or aspects of others that we should try to emulate. I grew up when Superman and Batman were all the rage on TV, and who can argue that we shouldn't work for truth, justice, and the American way? The danger comes, of course, when we try not to just be like our role models, but to become them. This is a recipe for disaster, a formula for failure. Neither you nor I will ever be more powerful than a locomotive or capable of leaping tall buildings. So when we try to be like Mike, As the Michael Jordan commercial would say, we are destined for disappointment. Even if it's not superheroes or pro athletes we try to model ourselves after. In Forrest Church's case, he came close to the mistake of trying to become like his father, the Senator Frank Church. Sometimes the influences that exert their power over us are more subtle than this. We grow up in a family of achievers, and although nothing is explicitly stated, we incorporate the message that much is expected of us. A parent's well-intended action sends a signal of what they hope for us, and we receive the gesture, consciously or subconsciously, as a mandate. If you hear things like, you're so good in math, you should become a scientist. Enough times as a child, you're likely to believe you should become a scientist, and that your passion for dance or music or social work is misplaced. By the same token, if over and over again, you hear the message, you'll never amount to anything, That too becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. The forces that dictate against being who we are are powerful and many. To be who we are can be like swimming upstream against a strong current of expectations and what I call the tyranny of shoulds. And as if these forces aren't enough to defeat us, to be who we are is to be made all the more challenging by our lack of self-knowledge and self-awareness. Perhaps the greatest challenge to living into Forest Church's mandate to be who you are is discovering just who and what that is. Living in the 21st century, most of us are blessed with lives of comfort and relative ease. And so we can ask the questions, who am I? And what do I wanna be when I grow up? Many of us spend years of our lives and thousands of dollars in therapy to discover the answers to those questions. And in finding them, some of us follow our bliss, to use Joseph Campbell's term, while others, constrained by factors such as fear, family, or finances, remain living a life that is not our own until our days run out. In his book, Let Your Life Speak, author and educator, Parker Palmer, tells of his journey of discovering his true self. He calls the true self, the self planted in us by God, who made us in God's own image the self that wants nothing more or less than for us to be who we were created to be. To embark on the journey to discover this God-given self takes courage and commitment. It's risky business. It requires us to shed the masks and costumes that populate our closets, to strip down to our naked selves and to take a close look in the mirror. There we are called to see ourselves and perhaps more challenging yet, to claim ourselves, warts and all. Palmer puts it this way, I know myself to be a person of weakness and strength, liability and giftedness, darkness and light. I now know that to be whole means to reject none of it, but to embrace all of it. This might all seem terribly narcissistic navel-gazing, but it is imperative that we discover our true selves and claim our wholeness in order to fulfill that other mandate we received from Forest Church, to do what we can, When we fail to discover our true selves, when we cling to the persona that are nothing more than the masks we wear or the fulfillment of the expectations of others, it is easy to simply remain victims of our own condition. We are disempowered puppets, actors playing out a script not of our own making. We blame God, our parents, or our partners for our circumstances. But when we do the hard work of discovering our true and authentic selves, of claiming our whole selves, We are called to live into those selves. Embracing one's wholeness, Parker Palmer writes, marks life, makes life more demanding, because once you do that, you must live your whole self. You must, in the the words of Forest Church, be who you are. The good news is that it's never too late. It's never too late to start the journey of self-discovery, of shedding the skin that we've worn since our birth, that has, like an ill-fitting suit, never felt quite right. May Sarton is a testament to this fact. When she wrote the words, now there is time and time is young, she was 83 years old. (laughs) It was at this chronologically advanced age that she discovered her true self and finally felt her own weight and density. To be who we are is to offer to the world the greatest gift we can give. To invest our lives and all that we do with sincerity, authenticity, and deep commitment leads us into relationships with other authentic selves. And in entering into those relationships, relationships that are sacred in the true meaning of the word, we cannot help but bring our collective power to bear against the forces of injustice, hatred, and oppression. Our collective wholeness will, by definition, heal the world. I would like to wrap up up this sermon by telling you one more story about Forest Church. Forrest had what I consider to be a very public spiritual practice that he engaged in every week. Each Sunday, he would conclude his sermon with the words, Amen, I love you, and may God bless us all. Just weeks before his death, he explained to his successor, Reverend Galen Gungridge, why he said, I love you, at the end of his sermons. When I say I love you from the pulpit, he told Galen, something connects. I get connected to the congregation, and they get connected to each other. It's almost like, for a moment at least, we are part of each other, and something larger than ourselves. It's the human form of love divine. And besides, Church went on, someone once told me that I'm the only person in her life who ever says I love you. She comes to church to hear someone say that she matters. We all yearn to be told that we matter that our true selves are worthy of love and capable of loving. In our common humanity, we share our vulnerabilities and our sensitivities, and we offer them up here on the Altar of Hope. I pray today that we may each find it within ourselves each and every day to want what we have, to do what we can, and to be who we are. Amen. I love you. May God bless us all.